right, welcome to tonight's episode of the Group Therapy Podcast. Tonight we have from the History Channel, uh, uh, Monster Quest, uh, I don't know how many, countless documentaries uh, on cryptozoology and cryptids, Bigfoot, um, all kinds of Ken Gerhard, um, I Ken, I'd like you to introduce yourself, please. Yeah, good evening, Paul. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Uh, my name is Ken Gerhard from San Antonio, Texas. I'm a cryptozoologist, uh, which means that I investigate evidence of or allegations of unknown animals and mysterious creatures, legendary beasts, things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, Mothman, so on and so forth. Well, uh, to start off, I got to ask, um, when did you get started? When did you, uh, like a lot of us, I mean, I for me, I fell in love with cryptids and stuff like that with uh, In Search Of. I mean, I think that's pretty yeah. much, yes. <laughs> um, and then like the... the yeah, I, oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, um, I'm probably much older than you are, Paul, to be honest, but... Um, uh, if you grew up watching In Search Of, maybe you're not too far behind me. But yeah, I was about eight or nine years old, I think. It was the mid-70s, 76, I think, when I first heard about Bigfoot. And uh, I already loved monster movies. And I also was very much into animals and creatures. I had lots of exotic pets and things. So, uh, I'm, I'm losing me. a little bit. Um, seeing a TV show about Bigfoot. Yeah. Um, you know, you had In Search Of, you had uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek, which is kind of a cult classic Bigfoot movie from the 70s that would air from time to time. And I also saw this weird exhibit at the Minnesota State Fair when I was growing up. It was called the Minnesota Iceman. And it was purported to be a Bigfoot-like, dead Bigfoot-like creature that they had frozen in this block of ice. And all that, and, and also the six million dollar man. Can't forget yeah. that that iconic episode where Big Bigfoot appeared. So all of that stuff was kind of happening, you know, 76, 77. And so that's kind of when I really got into Bigfoot and cryptozoology. I, I think with me, outside of uh, you know, Bigfoot on, on Six Million Dollar Man, um, in search of uh, the Scholastic Book Fair. I don't know if you remember those. Oh yeah. The, the, yeah, that we, sounds familiar. I got a book on Bigfoot and like mysterious creatures or something. And mm -hmm. I read it and I was like, I don't know, probably first or second grade. So this is 80. So, and it was like, oh, this is really cool. And I didn't know what, it, you know, back then it wasn't a cryptid. It was just mysterious creatures and stuff like that. And um, it just sort of snowballed as I got older. And, <laughs> and now I watch. Cool, yeah. Oh, my God. I watched so many documentaries yeah, well, on it. You watch them all, huh? Yeah. yeah. There's, um, a lot of, there's a lot of good ones, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good shows. And, uh, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. You know, I still, I've, I've seen tons of, uh, man, I've got, I'm so old school, Paul. I still have, like, a big tub full of VHS tapes with, like, documentaries that are recorded back in the 80s and 90s. And I'll pull those out sometime. Most, a lot of those Bigfoot and other cryptid things. And then uh, YouTube's been a blessing because you can see all kinds of cool, uh, find all kinds of cool videos on there. And uh, yeah, it's streaming. I mean, it's great. It's a great 
time that we live in because there's you know back when we were growing up it was just like you said the book fair and that mm -hmm. scholastic book fair and you know the time life book series oh, yeah. you yeah. had like a mysterious creatures volume yeah. and stuff like that so oh yeah. yeah um now how did you get how did you get hooked up with with the history channel well um i've worked mostly i've heard mostly on history channel but i've also been on other networks like travel channel yeah nat geo wild animal planet sci-fi and some of those so but I think the first series I was ever on was back in 2006. I was on an episode of a show called Legend Hunters uh, on the Bigfoot episode. And that was Canadian Travel Channel, but then it migrated to the, down to the American Travel yeah, Channel. Yeah, I remember but my first, Yeah, my first appearance on um, History Channel would have been my first episode of Monster Quest, which was in 2007, I believe. And uh, that would have been like the, the called Birdzilla dealt with like Thunderbirds and like monstrous winged cryptids, which was something I had just written a book about back then. So, yeah, um, I think I actually um, you a few years ago donated a book to our convention to help raise money for um, uh, for the food bank that year. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm not going to lie before 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 I before we raffled it off, I read it. So. <laughs> And then I'm I sure was it was like, it was still in pristine condition. Oh yeah, I'm like sitting there like okay, just and then I got this from you, the essential guide to Bigfoot. Oh, thank you. Yes, and thanks um, for your support. Yes, always. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, you, <clears throat> sorry, I see you a lot on Bigfoot and uh, the Thunderbirds. Are those uh -huh. your two specialties, or do you just encompass a little bit of everything, or do you, do you have a specialty? Um, that's a, you know, a fair question. I guess I get asked that a lot. I consider myself a generalist. So I do investigate all of the cryptids within the field of cryptozoology. Um, I guess I started my first field research in Bigfoot and that was, you know, well over two decades ago, I began going out with other researchers and searching for evidence in Texas, Louisiana and elsewhere. Um, but I kind of made my name for myself in the field with my Thunderbird research, which started with my first book, Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters. They mm -hmm. called it the Big Bird here in Texas. It's kind of a funny Sesame Street ripoff. Yeah. But um, uh, I wrote that book. That was a book uh, that had needed to be written. No one had really well documented the Texas Thunderbird reports. And so that was in 2006, I believe, 2007. And so that's kind of how I made a name for myself in the field. And I've kind of stuck to that focus in terms of Thunderbirds, very important, uh, Bigfoot, Sasquatch. And then, you know, I've always investigated lake monsters as well. And I finally wrote a book about the Loch Ness Monster and some of those. And uh, then the uh, the American, North American version of the Chupacabra, which, you know, there are different versions around the world in Latin America, but the, the one that's been called the Chupacabra here in, in the United States, which is uh, not really that mysterious anymore. It's just kind of a it's a grotesque looking canid or, or dog yeah. uh, thing, but, um, but it, it's just still a little bit weird and mysterious, but you know, those are kind of the four, I think that I focused on the most probably. Now you've been, you know, I've seen you on all these shows and stuff. You go, you're around everywhere. Um, I recently, um, a couple, well, I can't say recently, a couple years back, 
uh, for my anniversary, went to New Orleans. We drove oh. through the Honey Island Swamp area. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I had to like look at my wife. I'm like, we, we need to stop. And she's like, why do we need to stop here? I'm like, I want to see if I can find a monster. <laughs> and and uh, she goes, what? I'm like, the Honey nice. Island Swamp Monster. And then I had to explain to my wife for like the next 30 miles what the Honey Island Swamp Monster was. Um, yeah. So now, do you Some have more a more obscure version oh. of Bigfoot? But yeah, I've investigated that as well. It's a fun one. Um, that's like up until recently. Well, up until I was almost an adult, I would say. So this is, I you know, because the books I had gotten and the documentaries we had gotten up until maybe the really the two thousands, you just had your Bigfoot, maybe Boggy Creek, um, Yetis, um, you know, Orang Pandek stuff like that. But mm-hmm. it wasn't until later we started getting stuff that had been going way back, like the the, gra- the Ohio Grassman, mm-hmm. uh, the Honey Island Swamp Monster, uh, stuff like that. It started really becoming more forefront. I mean, I grew up in Ohio, and a friend of I, mine and I had a experience with what we believed to be the Grassman. Oh, wow. But mm-hmm. when I had my experience, no idea. Never knew what a Grassman was. Didn't know it was a cryptid. And then... It wasn't until later that like a friend, another guy I knew was in there goes, oh, yeah, he goes, that's the grass man. I'm like, what's the grass man? He goes, no, read this. Found another book, read it. It's like, okay, yeah, that explains that. And then I took it to my other friend who had an experience and it fit almost everything. And it was just one of the ones at, with the, the lack of information to a certain point. Now we're inundated with a lot of information yeah we didn't have that information back then um and it's almost the same way with thunderbirds up here in ohio we're starting to get abnormally large birds that i've that i've seen um Hmm. um i've seen one that i i just cannot cannot identify um i seen it i thought it was a halloween decoration it was so big um it was driving to work one day um, driving down the interstate, mm-hmm. I see a what's the remnants of a uh, billboard, and standing on the top of the end post is a large bird. And I thought, well, man, somebody went all out because there's a house not far from there. I was like, man, they put a big fake bird up there. And I'm driving, and then all of a sudden I see the head go, and it kind of does one of these numbers. It spreads its wings out, go, you know, kind of does that, and then shit sits back down. And I'm like fumbling for my phone while I'm driving down the interstate and I can't see it by the time I get up on it. And from now on, anytime I drive through that area, I always make sure I have my phone camera on because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I, I want to get a picture of it, but this thing had to been, I'm guessing the body was at least five foot tall and I didn't see the full wingspan because all it did like, you know, how birds will kind of shake a little bit and then go back. Yeah. So this thing was massive and I've never seen a bird that big, but we've seen a large amount of extremely large crows in this area. Mm-hmm. And um, I talked to a guy a few years back and he was telling me that they believe why we're getting these abnormally large birds in this area is all the hormones were feeding chickens and in corn <laughs> to make it bigger. Um, and his his theory makes sound, but I was like, but there's still got to be an abnormally large bird to be able to breed more abnormally large. Um, 
but I I had never yeah, even heard. Yeah, well, you got a lot, a lot of things. Yeah, I didn't. I never even heard of the Thunderbird this far north. I knew I, you know, read about them being in the 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 you know the Southwest Texas, or you know Arizona up in the um, Oklahoma and stuff like that. But I never knew that they came this far north. So. Yeah. Sorry. But um it's okay, you kind of froze up on me. Yeah, it froze up on me too a little bit. So <clears throat> but uh now do you think that we are getting actual thunderbirds this far north, or is it just you know we're just getting abnormally large birds? Oh yeah. Uh well you first first of all, I mean there's a tradition of uh Thunderbird reports in uh, North Central Pennsylvania. I just got back from there a few weeks ago, and that's one of the real hot spots up there in the Susquehannock uh, National Forest, Brule National Forest. And that spills over a little bit into Ohio yeah. and West Virginia and other surrounding states, Kentucky. So, um, so yeah, there is a long tradition of Thunderbird reports going back, you know, at least over a century in that region. So that doesn't surprise me. Um, the other thing you, you you mentioned, you know, you have to acknowledge, and Paul, I look at all of these mysteries from a zoological perspective. So yes, mm -hmm. surely there are uh, examples of known species of birds that grow to exceptional sizes. Uh, you have, you know, a lot of that is genetics. Mm -hmm. You might have a rare freak mutation like gigantism where, you know, one particular crow is for whatever reason, you know, 30% longer and bigger than all the other crows around. Um, or you could have a situation, as you're implying, where you have other stimuli and factors that create, you know, genetic shifts and things where you might have, you know, gigantism in more of a, you know, a group, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in a particular region. And that's because those populations are usually isolated. It's called, you know, insular evolution. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I've certainly, you know, I remember the, I think I first met you when you, you got in touch with me to share your Thunderbird report, which yeah, I, which maybe, I appreciate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, yeah, the size estimate you described falls within the range of, you know, I've documented well over a hundred uh, personally, but well over a hundred um, Thunderbird accounts and the average wingspan described estimated. And keep in mind, it's hard to estimate as you kind of mentioned, you know, yeah. you know, you don't always get a good idea or sense of how big the wingspan is, particularly if they're flying up in the air, people have a tough time judging how big thing, the things mm -hmm. are. Uh, but I'd say about 14 or 15 feet is the average estimated wingspan on these alleged monster birds and a height, as you mentioned, maybe five feet, you know, four to five feet height, which is, you know, that's still much larger much larger than like a golden eagle or a bald eagle or a condor or some of the largest mm -hmm. predatory birds that we have in, in North America. So it's a real mystery what, what you and others are seeing. Yeah. Now you've traveled all over. What's, what's your, what's been your favorite um, expedition to go on to, to research? Oh gosh. Um, that's, I, th I think people have asked me that before. It's hard to choose because I've really have enjoyed them all. Um, but I had, um, uh, I had a really good expedition that I organized down to Central America back in 2004, specifically to the country of Belize, which is nestled just below Mexico there. And there have, uh, 
there have been accounts there and traditions of two types of Bigfoot-like creatures coming out of the jungle and the mountains there. Uh, one is called the Sisamito, which is like a Sasquatch, basically, seven, six, seven feet tall, walks upright, looks like a gorilla, kind of lives in the mountains, it has a loud, scary call, um, these big human-like footprints, so it sounds like a Sasquatch. And then the other one is called the El Duende, which means the goblin in Spanish. And it's described as, it's kind of viewed in folklore as more like a kind of a, a gnome or like a mischievous kind of like yeah. troll or something. But, yeah. um, but some accounts have described these little hairy men, hair covered men that live in the edge of the, the, the Maya mountains. And, um, you know, only about three to five feet tall with really old ancient looking features and things like that. So could be a different species or something else. Um, so anyways, but, uh, we, you know, we had a good expedition down there and uh, didn't find any conclusive evidence, but I found some interesting little footprints, human-like footprints with pointy heel. Um, and just, it was just a good learning experience. And I just got to really enjoy some amazing habitat I was in the Chickabull jungle in the uh, also in the Pine Ridge Mountains of the Maya Mountains and also the Coxcomb Jaguar Sanctuary. And those were all really amazing places to visit. Very that, pristine wilderness. That, Alaska was great too, though. I loved uh, working in Alaska. See, that, that would be the worst part. You're you're out searching for, you know, cryptids and and you know Bigfoot, you know, Yeti, whatever. And, you know, you're out focusing on that, but you don't, you forget about all, you know, people forget about the other stuff you have to worry about being out in the woods. You know, you got bear, you got, you know, you were in, down in Belize, you jaguar, you have uh, <laughs> snakes and all that stuff. Yeah, fertilant snakes down in Belize are pretty deadly. Those are the, the venomous snakes. Um, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of those uh, in Alaska. We were worried about bears and mountain lions and different things. Um, but what I like to point out to people is that really the most deadly animals that you find in the wilderness are the smallest things, mosquitoes and ticks and bacteria and little teeny things that you don't notice right away. And they, they basically, they're, you know, <laughs> inject you with something that lends to a quick demise. So a lot of, uh, I've had, uh, colleagues that have investigated in some pretty tough habitat in places like the Congo and Africa, Papua New Guinea, the Amazon, and, you know, they get these terrible infections and things. And, you know, it's so, I mean, it, it's gonna be, yeah, it can be very treacherous doing doing these expeditions sometimes. Now, all right, um, when it comes to the, you know, the Bigfoot, the Yeti, the, like I said, we go down the list of our ink. <clears throat> You know, we always have the people go, oh, you're seeing bear. You're seeing this. You're seeing that. Um, I'm on the thing is that, okay, maybe you are seeing bear. But when you get down to it, maybe nine out of ten times, you are seeing a bear that you think is Bigfoot. But that's at one time that you're actually witnessing something that, you know, is amazing. And with, you know, what what's the... I don't know. You know, I don't know how to put this here. Um, when it comes to, you know, your, your large primates and stuff like that, um, mm -hmm. I'm one of the people that I, I don't believe they're, they're magical. I don't believe they're, um, 
a mystical dimension hopping being. I think they're just abnormally smart. They are not far removed from humans. Um, and that, you know, they, they, they see us and smell us long before we ever get even remotely close to them. So when mm-hmm. we do see them, it's completely by accident. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, where you stand on a lot of stuff. Cause I've, I've researched some of your, your stuff and whatnot. Um, I've actually researched a lot of it just by, like I said, watching all the documentaries. Um, now, where do you stand on, do you think that, that Bigfoot Yeti is no different than the difference between a gorilla, uh, an orangutan, you know, uh, 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 a bonobo and stuff like that when it comes to each of those? Or do you think they're actually just kind of slightly different versions of the same creature? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. It's actually, that's a complex or many questions. Um, this Sorry. is a, I'll try to summarize this as best as possible. But as I write in my book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, um, you know, the most, and again, I look at these things in terms of what is the most rational explanation based on the evidence and the data that we've been presented. Mm-hmm. If, if Bigfoot exists, and I'm only 90% convinced they exist because I've never seen one, but that's, I've heard vocalizations and experienced other things, I've seen evidence. So 90% is where I'm at. So if they exist, they must surely have adaptations that are geared towards avoiding us. That's the only reason that we haven't been able to find them. So it kind of reinforces what you're saying. Uh, we we often refer to them as the ninjas of the forest. They're, they're really good at hiding from us, staying very still, peeking out. Uh, they can hear us, they can smell us, they can see us, they they move around at night. So they're very stealth and that that's really the only way you could explain how a species like that could, could avoid being found up to this point. Now, as far as what they are, um, based on the physical descriptions, they obviously are hominids yeah. uh, or hominins, um, which basically means a greater ape. Um, they're bipedal, primarily bipedal. They may go down on fours on some, you know, on some occasions, but they seem to be mostly have a locomotor system like us. So they look very human-like when they swing their arms and, and walk. Um, so they, you know, we, we may have some, we may have evidence of them in the fossil record, Paul, something like Paranthropus, uh, Robustus, Paranthropus boisei. Those are like primitive hominins from Africa a couple of million years ago that looked very much like Bigfoot. Uh, some people have suggested Gigantopithecus, a giant ape from China. That's kind of, that theory is kind of starting to fall apart. Yeah. Uh, Homo. Homo heidelbergensis. I mean, so there are things that kind of look like Bigfoot in the past. I don't really think that it's, I, I think they're probably more intelligent than a gorilla or orangutan. As intelligent as gorillas and orangutans and chimpanzees are all very intelligent, mm-hmm. by the way, sentient. Oh, uh, yeah. But we're talking about something that must be even a notch above that. Not quite human level, but mm-hmm. um, so I don't know. It's, it's really speculation, but I think uh, to answer your last question, Bigfoot, Yeti over in Asia, mm-hmm. also Almasti or Almas, yeah. also Yawi, Yeren, Mande Barung, Barmanu, Ukumar, Sisamito. There's so many names around the world, but the descriptions are similar. The most 
rational explanation is if these things exist, it's the same species. It would be less probable that there are more than one species of unidentified relic hominin running around on our planet. So every time you add a different species, it makes it even less scientifically plausible that we've overlooked multiple species of giant, you know, hominins or primates yeah. or so. I don't know. So I tend to now the only uh, delineation that I'll make is that you know I do investigate the little tiny ones like the duende, mm -hmm. and here in North America, if you speak to different Native American traditions, you'll find out about the memaguese and hachesitehi and. Uh, Awakule. I mean, there's all of these like little hairy pygmy sized Bigfoots that you can find it. So maybe there's two types, like a pygmy and a big one, but even that, that seems hard to accept, but who knows? Yeah. When it comes to like the Almasti, um, the Russian one, from what I've studied, and I mean, you've got to be studying a lot more than I have. Um, it, it, it kind of points towards a Neanderthal on a lot of those and that is i mean i i there there's two that i think if if it comes down to it if if all the other cryptids are don't exist even though i, I believe in that you know a bunch of them I'm, I'm really close on all of them it's that that you know like you said about 90 percent the ones that are like 95 to 97 percent would be the almasty which i believe is a neanderthal and the orang pendek, which I believe might just be a, 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 like almost an orangutan, because th they got the orange hair, they they're humped over. At least you know from what the research I've done on it, which like I said, you you've done far more than I have. Now, where do you stand on 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 that theory on those two? Yeah, that's good good stuff, Paul. I'll address the last one first. Orang pendek, or the short man of Sumatra. Mm -hmm. I consider to be the most probable of all of the hominid cryptids. It seems like that that there's a high probability that something could be found in Karinchi Sablat, and, mm -hmm. you know, in the interior of Sumatra. And I have I've never been there on to do research, but I have colleagues like Adam Davis, Richard Freeman, Cliff Berrickman, who have all gone over there mm -hmm. and seen evidence. Um, they're all convinced that it is more like a pongid or like you said, like a new species of orangutan that moves around on the ground mm -hmm. more often and, and is not as arboreal and brachiating. Um, so, and in fact, in 2017, there was a new species of orangutan described in Sumatra. Uh, they're only slightly different. Well, I should say slightly. They diverged from other species millions of years ago. But yeah. so, I mean, so that, that's a compelling too. Now, as far as the Almas or Almasti, um, you're right, there were uh, for many years, um, starting with the British, I'm sorry, the Russian anthropologist Boris, Boris Porchnev, mm -hmm. and then you had uh, Jean-Marie uh, Jean Kaufman, who was uh, also a Russian uh, Almas investigator, and then you later had um, uh, Myra Shackley, who was a British anthropologist, all proposed Neanderthals as candidates for these Asian wild man accounts, the Almas. Yeah. Uh, or Almasti, but um, I think, in my own opinion, Paul, I think the model of, in terms of what we know of Neanderthals has really changed dramatically over uh, recent decades. We now, we don't know how hairy Neanderthals were. We know they were very robust and thick and thick set yeah. compared to us, but there's been a lot of evidence found now that they were actually, had a lot of levels of culture that they, 
you know, they made jewelry and cave paintings and they had religious ceremonies and, you know, so it's almost like they were people, basically. They yeah. were different species of homo sapiens. They weren't the, they didn't, don't really fit the, because the Almas, I know they've said in Asia that they will like sometimes they might have a primitive language or that they'll trade things with the local villagers, like mm -hmm. animal skins and things. So you could almost go there, but yeah. there's no, there's no evidence of fire use. And I mean, fire use came up with Homo erectus, yeah. you know, maybe a million you know, years ago. So I think Homo erectus might be a better candidate because you're talking about a pre-hominid, uh, or I'm sorry, a pre-human hominid oh, that, yeah. that was very widespread. It was all over Africa, Asia, and even parts of Europe. And for a very long period of time from, you know, like 1.8 to a million years ago to up to 50,000, you know, I, I don't know, 50,000 years ago. So... I don't know. I think Homo erectus would be, in my opinion, would be fit the model more of the Almasti. And also it, it, you could make a stronger argument that it was around a lot longer than others and it was more widespread than others. Okay. It was definitely in Asia. So, yeah, well, it, it's it's one of the ones when, when when, like I said, research I've done, which, like I said, is is kind of limited. Um, but what I found was when you looked at it, it was like, okay, well, I know that, that they're, they're um, very like lone creatures. They're not really, they don't run in packs and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. That's one of the things I was like, well, okay, yes. You know, Neanderthals had, you know, fire, they had uh, culture and whatnot like that. But I was thinking, okay, well, maybe if you remove just a few single ones where it's like less than a tribe, in less than a than a, a you know that you just have like one or two living on the very edges of where they know that they can get food and stuff like that and they would probably learn over a period of time you know hey don't use fire it draws the humans towards you you want to stay at, at an arm's length um i mean that's from my limited research but <laughs> yeah, that's a you know I I think I've written something similar that that's a pause. I mean it's all speculation, Paul. Oh yeah, it is definitely speculation. But you're right. It could, you know they may have reverse evolved in terms of their behavior patterns. If you know they found like you're right, fire. No, that's a bad thing. Maybe they you know digressed digressed into a more primitive. There aren't a lot of examples for that in hominin culture, but it's not impossible. So no. I mean you're right. You it's, know, it's a possibility. Uh, yeah. It's it's once you start using tools and finding fire, you, you, you don't tend to go backwards with those, but. Uh, I love my tools. Yes. I don't know about you, buddy, but I got. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, fire. I can't, I can't fix my car with a rock and a stick. Yeah. And if I, I like fire. I use it a lot. So fire and tools have been yep. pretty good for me. So yeah, I don't think I would go that way, but you know, if, if they, these things were fearful of humans, who knows? All right. Um, is there any, um cryptids out there that you just you just look at and go there is no way that that exists that well yeah well, i'm sorry go ahead that like um mine is is the was it the um the like the ones that are just one-offs the like the flatwood monster mm. um stuff like that i i think that's just one thing completely misrepresentate or uh you know people you know saw something that they thought was something else and you know, it just kind of just ballooned from there. Um, like, I, I'm not a big f believer in that one. And there's a couple other ones. Um, is there any that you just look at and go, there, there's just no way? Well, 
you know, the, again, these are com always complex questions in the field because these yeah. are very, you know, complicated. So, you know, the traditional cryptids are things that I consider to be unknown animals like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, Orang Pendek, Thunderbirds, so forth. Um, there's kind of a fringe area now of cryptozoology. Uh, the things started being called cryptids, even though they weren't traditionally considered cryptids. But like you said, the Flatwoods Monster, uh, Mothman, um, Dogman, Wendigo, Skinwalkers, all of these things that people consider to be cryptids are not really, because they couldn't be animals. They, but, so I'm not saying um, they don't, they couldn't exist in another format you know yeah. like you know i have friends that are paranormal researchers and ufo researchers and there's all kinds of i'm open-minded to the possibility that there's other kind of metaphysical things going on in our world that we just don't understand and sometimes those things may resemble a monster or some kind of weird creature so i kind of that's where i'm at with all of those so i'm not saying i don't think they could exist but if we if we were going to kind of take it from your your perspective i think is what you want to say is you know if i'm going to take a purely zoological stance here and say could these yeah. things exist in the natural world then i would say that absolutely i would rule out dogman flatwoods monster um dover demon jersey devil chupacabra goat man some of those just really weird that just don't make any sense biologically um but Again, they might exist in some form. There might be some phenomenon that's unrelated to the natural yeah. world in which these things appear. And so that's that's a whole other can of <laughs> can of worms. Yeah. Now it, it's funny because we were you were talking about Mothman, and you know Mothman is uh, really associated with Point Pleasant, you know Virginia. Um, but there's Mothman legends going way back. I mean, not necessarily, mm -hmm. but that same description. Uh, because yeah. Mothman was just basically written up for what the newspaper, because they wanted to call it the Batman, and they couldn't. So, um, Right. Yeah. yeah. Now, going back to the ancient Sumerians, I think, um, is the first tradition of the Apkalu, which are Mothman-type demigods, winged humanoid creatures. And so now we're talking like a few thousand years ago. So, Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people go, well, Mothman's just a one-off. I'm like, no, he's not. I mean, there are people still spot Mothman in, uh, I want to say, relatively recently in Chicago, near Chicago. Yeah. yeah. There are there are, there are are accounts coming out of Chicago or have been for a few years now. Uh, I get reports, um, not as often as I used to, but, um, you know, maybe a couple times a year, two, three times a year, I'm contacted by a flying humanoid, a Mothman eyewitness. And it's rarely in West Virginia. It can be anywhere in the world, California to Texas to North, you know, Canada to, you, you know, you name it. People are seeing these things everywhere, whatever they are. So that's another reason to, you know, kind of give it another look, I, I imagine, and, and say that it's not just this isolated incident that took place, you yeah. know, in, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia long ago, that it is more of a worldwide phenomenon that takes that form. Now, when, when, you know, it comes to cryptids and stuff like that, and you, like I said, I contacted you a few years back and was talking to you about my Thunderbird experience. Um, mm -hmm. you, you have to have that, you know, people that contact you. Have you ever 
had somebody like give you enough information that you're like, we've got to go now. We've got to go to this place now because this is hot. Or, um, I mean, honestly, not Paul, because you know, I, I, I speak to a lot of people that are that seem very sincere and uh, think that they've seen these things. I'm not questioning their integrity or their experience, but um, well, first of all, you know, as, as a self-employed cryptozoologist, I have fairly limited resources in terms of, you know, I'm not, I'm not just like an eccentric millionaire yeah. that's living here in my mansion that wants to fly, flit around the world on a moment's notice. I wish I could do that, but uh, you know, it, it costs money and, and takes yeah. time and planning to do one of these things. So um, the best I can do is if someone has some really compelling evidence you know, something that's maybe a notch above just a sighting, like a photograph or, a, you know, hair or hair sample or vocalization recordings or mm -hmm. something that's maybe, or, you know, or there's multiple witnesses, yeah. then yeah, I might plan something for the immediate future to do an on-site investigation, either alone or with colleagues. Um, but it's gotten to the point now where and I know, again, people are well-intentioned and anyone that reaches out to me that has an experience to share, I'm always very happy to listen and interested to hear it. Mm -hmm. But I don't have, you know, I'm juggling so many different things and projects that I don't have time to necessarily, you know, I have some people that give me an ultimatum, like, I've got a story for you, call me right now, you know? And I'm like, I, I, no, <laughs> you know, I don't, I'm not gonna call you up just because someone says, call me, I've got something to tell you. So I typically now have a thing where I ask people to just, you know, please put together like a brief written summary, what you saw. I won't share it. I won't tell anyone else. I'm not going to put it out there. It's just, just so I know what I'm dealing with on the front end. And even if it's, you know, something that has to do with, with what I do, because some people have experiences with things that are, man, I'm like, that's not cryptozoology. It's really interesting and weird and crazy and far out. I might know someone else that would investigate this, but you know, I can't, I can't I'm not going to do an investigation because somebody saw like a, a, a half bat, half human in their bedroom, you know, which I've gotten those stories. I was like, you know, I'm not going to stake out your bedroom for a half, half man, half bat. It's, you know, just not, not what I'm up to at the moment. Yeah. Um, like I said, you, you're on, cause, cause I, I'm a fan of, of um, Amazon prime, Tubi and Plex, because those are where I go to watch documentaries on Bigfoot and Yeti and whatnot like that. Um, like I said, you've been on, I found another one that I did not know you were on. Like I said, it was our last night or night before last. Just how many documentaries have you been in now? Do you, do you have any, like, estimation? Uh, um, yeah, you know what? I think I did count it recently because I was putting, I was checking my, I have a thing online called an IMDB profile, which you have to yeah. have if you're on television or whatever. But um, I think I've appeared on about 60 different episodes of 20 or some 20 series, 20 mm -hmm. TV series, 60 episodes total, something like that. Now, have you ever thought about just, just pitching somebody to, that, to host your own show? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, I've been trying to do that for years. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. You just wonder you how can pitch, you can pitch all you want, but ultimately you have to convince the History Channel or another network that they're going to invest millions of dollars into that. Yeah. And uh, they obviously like me because they have me on different shows, 
Um, I almost got a series on Animal Planet back in 2010. I was very close. And I almost got a series. There was one other time when I thought I was pretty close to, oh, I, actually I did get a series in 2015 called Missing in Alaska, but it only went for one season, 13 episodes. And then it didn't get picked up for a second season. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I've got, you know, I'm always out there pitching and hoping that, you know, maybe something will happen for very selfish reasons, because <clears throat> I want someone else to start paying for, my expeditions so of out of pocket yeah and and like i said you, you're just on so much it's like man it just seems like the natural evolution would be like hey this guy's on like every show we do let's just give him his own show for a season you know well as much you know keep it keep this in mind too paul as much as you and i may be total cryptozoology documentary junkies and love yeah. to watch this stuff 24 7 um you know, in order to, for a network to go on to, or to, you know, for a, a series to go onto a major network, they got to expect that, you know, yeah, you got to have X amount of viewers and yeah, it's got to have, a, and, yeah. and these things, and these things are kind of, they're cyclical. Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Cyclical. Yeah. So like cryptozoology will come in waves. Like, you know, there every few years there's like, it's a really big deal and then it kind of fades and then it comes back again. So you kind of have to hit that wave at the right time. But now of course you have, <clears throat> like you, man, I've got all these new streaming services that I love to watch. And, you know, I guess it'd be easier to get a series perhaps in one of those, <clears throat> but it's going to be a little bit more limited because people have so many viewing options now that, you know, it may, it may be harder to get a big, uh, yeah. super big audience for, for a show, but, um, but who knows? Yeah. Um, no. Okay. Going back to when you were a kid, what was just your 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 favorite cryptid? Just your one that you were just like, that is cool. I like that. That's the neatest thing ever. Um, oh, that's tough, man. Um, when people ask me nowadays, and I say, uh, you know, I don't know. It's hard to choose, but I, you know, Thunderbirds are are pretty cool. I like investigating that cryptid. Um, when I was a kid, it probably was more about Bigfoot particularly at first, because like I said, I had seen this Minnesota Iceman thing and uh, there were a lot of Bigfoot shows on TV and stuff. And, um, but you know, I also liked the Loch Ness Monster a lot. And uh, finally at age 15, I got to visit Loch Ness when I was, you know, back in 1982 when I was 15. And so that was a pretty cool experience. So and as I got older, it's, it's evolved, but I, you know, I still love them all. I, it's hard to choose a favorite, honestly. I find them all totally fascinating in different ways. I've, I've, I've always been a sucker for, for the Bigfoot, you know, Sasquatch. Um, going back to, I mean, I've got, I, I'm, a, I am a sucker for the Sasquatch horror movies. Oh yeah. I have between VHS, DVDs, and Blu-rays. I got a big old stack of them. I've got like the Boggy Creek movies um and all that stuff and, and one of my favorite comic books of all time is alpha flight so i love sasquatch from alpha oh, yeah flight. alpha flight that was a yeah. good one canadian um, superheroes they eh? yep gotta have sasquatch <laughs> um, um that, before you before we move on from this i just want to mention that uh for any of your listeners that are close enough there is actually going to be a texas bigfoot film festival this year in december <clears throat> in marshall texas 
and they're going to have they're going to be showing legend of boggy creek and uh one of the classic 50s abominable snowman movie i can't remember which one maybe abominable snowman of the himalayas yeah uh creature from black lake <clears throat> and um exists okay and there are going to be a number of speakers there talking about each movie including lyle blackburn lauren coleman dave coleman sean whitley and others so so yeah if anyone just loves bigfoot movies there's actually now an event in texas next month where people can come and watch a whole bunch of bigfoot movies and hear people talk about them so it's funny because now i've have uh two friends um working on two they did two different um sasquatch bigfoot uh related um projects um my friend did the boggy creek tv series that was on amazon uh-huh. Uh, my friend, one of my other friends was actually the Bucky Creek monster. <laughs> oh, <cool. laughs> and then I have, uh, other friends that did, uh, um, uh, they did a movie. And then when that went, they had still had the costume and stuff. So they did, uh, episodes of a, of a series after that. Um, oh, nice. it's, it's kind of funny. Cause I got people in both the, the people making movies about uh, creatures. And then I've, I've got friends that are just totally fascinated by cryptozoology and 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 the whatnot um okay i don't know if this is is gonna be a a a sore subject or anything like this um david politis with the the missing 411 what the implications Mm -hmm. that that is a bigfoot sasquatch type creature where do you stand on that um so i you know as far as the the missing persons cases, which I, which I guess is the crux of what for mm-hmm. the 411 is all about. I'm not, you know, I'd rather not put f- forward a, uh, an opinion on those because I haven't, honestly, that's not what I investigate. Uh, I mean, I did host a series called Missing in Alaska that had a premise somewhat based on that, but it was very limited in terms of my experience actually investigating missing persons cases. <clears throat> so I, I really, I'm not in a position to challenge anybody's claims or allegations or anything that people write about that. Now, Politis has obviously written a couple of Bigfoot books prior to the 411 books, mm-hmm. uh, the Hoopa Project and Tribal Bigfoot, which to some extent people have, you know, found them useful in terms of some of the eyewitness accounts and things like that. Um, now, here's the thing: to my understanding, Politis has never explicitly said. Bigfoot is responsible for these missing people, that it's, you know, more of an as thing that people are, yeah. a conclusion that people can draw for themselves, you know, once they read these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in my interactions with Politis, he's also told me that he doesn't like to be painted into a corner. So he doesn't like to necessarily put out a definitive, you know, so I don't know. I, I you know, I can't speak to those motivations. Uh, I don't think Bigfoot is responsible for missing people. I think if it was, we would definitely know they existed at this point. There would be a lot more accounts of them grabbing and dragging people off, which you don't get those accounts. Um, You know, but, and and again, with all due respect to David Politis, I mean, those two books, you may have some value, but he really as far as I know, he has not put as nearly as much time into Bigfoot and Sasquatch research as many other researchers I know. <clears throat> he only worked on that for a few years and then he kind of moved on to the missing persons cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
you know, I, you know, he, he's entitled to have his theories, I guess, like everyone else. Um, but you know, in terms of his Bigfoot stuff, there's just a lot of stuff he's dead wrong, wrong about. Mm. And it's just because of inexperience in terms of, you know, uh, being, being around a long time and, you know, like working with all of the, you know, so I don't know, but, uh, yeah, the 411, I don't know. I don't, like I said, I don't know what, you know, what any of that's about, but, um, but the Bigfoot, I don't think is, is a culprit in terms of these missing people. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I, one, I don't think either. Cause like you said, if, if it would have been, it would have been definitely somebody would have, especially one of the ones that they find the people or they find the kids, kids had been like, yeah, it was a, you know, my kids, even going way back, they knew what a Bigfoot was. They knew what a Sasquatch was. So, you know, it's, it's pretty, um, uh, in the, uh, well, the zeitgeist of, of current of, you know, what mm-hmm. we, what we know. Um, but yeah, I, I had to ask that. I'm sorry. No, it's, that's a, it's a valid question, Paul. A lot of people wonder about that and ask me about it. Um, the one last thing I'd add is if you look at the vast majority of sightings in the Bigfoot database, you know, on different websites and things. <clears throat> and if you read about Bigfoot sightings, which I'm sure like me, I mean, I've written read hundreds or thousands of Bigfoot accounts in different books through the years. People always describe them as moving away quickly. You know, mm-hmm. they, they're, they're running across the road. People see them and then they maybe they face off and then the Bigfoot turns and walks off. Or sometimes rarely people are chased by the Bigfoot, but the Bigfoot never catches them. It's just trying to like scare them. Mm-hmm. so so yeah so the the evidence just does not support a theory that bigfoot is overly hostile towards humans at least no more hostile than any other animal like a bear or a mountain lion that's just you know you catch them by surprise or they're protecting their young or you know yeah whatever but so i don't think you know one of the things i try to do is dispel the 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 uh, misconception that Bigfoot is a highly aggressive man killer cannibal. It's not, it's just a hominin that's big and scary because it's big <laughs> and yeah. it's hairy and it looks like us. It's scary, but it's not yep. life threatening. If you run into a, a big old, like seven foot tall guy walking around the corner and you make eye contact, you'd be like, Oh, oh, hey, uh, you're a backup. Go take a minute. Um, especially if you're caught off guard. <clears throat> yep. Um, now you were talking about the Minnesota Iceman. Mm-hmm. That is one I can remember from way, way, way back. The always the picture because it's like him like this, frozen in a block of ice. Um, now, do you think that's real? Because there's like I guess there's like five of them now. No, I don't think. Well, I don't. I don't know if there's that many, but um, there. The theory is that there's at least there were two of them two versions of the Minnesota mm-hmm. Iceman. The first one was identified as being a biological specimen by two scientists that were not able to thaw it out. It was still frozen in a block of ice, but they had access to it for three days, took pictures of it, measurements, sketches, and they could, they claim they could even smell that its decaying flesh was like seeping up through the ice. So mm-hmm. that was, they were very convinced this thing was real. That became a potential target of law enforcement enforcement investigations at the end of 1968 and then shortly thereafter it this Minnesota Iceman vanished for a for a short spell and then it came back but when it came back the guy that owned it said no this is not a real this is a latex dummy 
but it looks like the original. So it's a very, oh, I see you have your, your co-host is there yeah. behind you. Um, so it was, it's a very confusing situation. A lot of people think it was a hoax. The one that I saw in 1976 was a latex dummy. And I know that because I've also seen it recently. It's up in Austin, Texas, and it's owned by a friend of mine. So, um, but the first one back in 1968, you know, was it the real deal, the real McCoy? <clears throat> and it would have been very, it, it, it's understandable why the guy that owned it would have made it vanish because he was getting questioned by the FBI and local law enforcement and it supposedly looked very human-like and it was dead and had even had allegedly bullet wounds in it. So it's, if, if you've got a dead human-like thing and you're, it's got bullet wounds and you're charging people to come see it, you could get in a lot of trouble for that, I'm assuming. So, yeah. um, so you know, it, it seems like a bait and switch. I, I'm convinced there were two versions just based on lengthy investigations of the, the one that I've seen and comparing it to the original notes, photographs, sketches of the the Iceman that was observed in 1968 it seems like that the the newer version has got some differences some notable differences and it, it is latex I know that for a fact so I don't know but um very sad missed opportunity Paul if back in 1968 there was something like an Almas or a Bigfoot that was dead and uh, it could have been available you know for scientific evaluation and then just slip through the cracks. Yeah, that would that would have been horrible because it, it would have been you know all it would take was one guy taking that in, everything getting ran on all, all the tests. And like, yep, it's conclusive. It exists. Yeah, this C is the couple. one. We found one. Here it is. Um, you know, because I know a lot of places have uh, made it so that they're they're protected species. Um, mm. you know, along with uh, you know, your 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 uh, um lake monsters and all this stuff like that um and a lot of people are like oh that's I'm like but you've you've got to because if not you're still gonna have people out there trying to shoot them trying to you know because you're always going to have that one guy who wants to be the first one to bring one in unfortunately so and then if you get um you know yeah you're gonna go to prison for it but you can bring it in you know it's so um I think my my favorite story was the guy who, uh, um, oh man, I'm trying to remember. It's about well, about 20 years ago, guy mm -hmm. claimed he shot one and ended up shooting shooting at one, but shot the child. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, there was a whole big thing because people were were just mad at him and stuff like that. But then he couldn't prove that with the body. He said the body was gone, and and um, I, like I said, I remember bits and pieces of that one. I don't remember the whole story, but yeah. Yeah, the guy's named Justin Smeha. The place is it's referred to as the Sierra Kills uh, incident, um, and ultimately a flesh sample that was provided by Smeha, uh, which he insinuated was from the Bigfoot. Um, he had gone back and found this, this flesh, uh, was DNA tested and it turned out to be a black bear. So, you know, that's kind of the consensus opinion now of most of the serious Bigfoot investigators is that Smeha may have killed a bear and, um, he was known to have hunt bears before and that he tried to convince people that it was a Bigfoot for whatever reason. So, 
Well, you had those guys uh, again about 20 years ago who uh, had the freezer with the rang it with the like the monkey suit with full of uh, roadkill, and he was yeah. trying to claim that's just that yeah. Just there's a there far more people are making money. The the people that are making money off of Bigfoot are the hoaxers, sadly, and that's why hoaxing has always been around in the field and continues to be around. Because the people that can successfully perpetuate a hoax can figure out ways to make money off of it and get publicity and stuff. And uh, it's just another landmine that Bigfoot investigators have to deal with, you know, as we go about our <laughs> our investigations and and try to try to keep the the topic from becoming a laughing stock. Yeah. <laughs> in front of the in terms of what the general public thinks, but uh, the guys like that certainly make it harder to do that. Yeah. Now um, we're get, we're getting close to the end here. Um, what would what would be the cryptid that you have not went and and uh, you know did an expedition for that you want to go? Money's no object. You can go anywhere in the world. What you going to search for? Thylacine. Thylacine, Australia. Thylacine, also known as the Tasmanian tiger or Tasmanian wolf. Yeah. Yes, a carnivorous marsupial that supposedly went extinct in 1936, but there have been hundreds of accounts uh, in and around the island of Tasmania and also in southern Australia. So uh, that is one I think is very probable that they, there, there is still a population of thylacines out there, perhaps critically endangered, but um, uh, I'd love to go look for those. Um, is, there, is there any others that you think that are not extinct that that you just think are are really on the verge um because you of course you get the people who think that there's still saber-toothed tigers you think the people that are still that there's mammoths and, and whatnot what what's what other than the thylacine what do you think that there might still be out there well there's obviously a higher probability of finding things in the ocean than anywhere else mm -hmm. so um you know i think uh as we begin to explore the ocean more improving sonar technology and underwater cameras and things that we will perhaps find um, uh, giant serpentine animals that have been called sea serpents mm -hmm. that were reported by sailors for you know centuries around the world um, and maybe some other things that we just don't even know yet no you know giant I mean look at the giant squid you know I mean that came out of uh, came out of legend and be became a real species. Um, so I think there are things in the ocean we can't even conceive of that large animals that we'll probably discover. Um, you know, other than that, um, you know, one, one can be hopeful in terms of like things like Bigfoot. Um, we do have eDNA now, environmental DNA, where you, we can go in and collect samples of soil and water and even air and extract DNA from those. I mean, when I say we, I don't mean I can. Yeah. I can hire. Facility. I can hire someone to do that. So I mean, that's that could be a pretty useful tool. So you know, I'm hopeful that with with the new technologies emerging, that we'll, you know, we'll be able to find some of these things. All right. Um, well, you know, I, I love people and that always bring up, you know, oh, we would have seen these things can't stay hidden forever, but you know, oh, we're, 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 and then I have a friend who's like, you know, oh, we're finding new species all the time. Mm -hmm. But then the other guys like what, what we're finding is small. True. But, but I'm like, but most you, of it. Yeah. But relatively, but not always. Yeah. You know, um, if you want to look at the timeline, 
we didn't find the mountain gorilla until relatively recently. Mm -hmm. the, the giant panda we didn't find until relatively recently. Those were myths. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but the people around there knew that these things existed. And I think that's what cryptozoology is. I think it's stuff that just has a small population. It's, you know, maybe territorial or migrate, you know, maybe they migrate, they travel, so they don't, you know, not in one spot anytime. But when it comes down to it, you know, I never take anything off the table. Um, you know, there are certain things that I think, okay, I don't, you know, like I, I think there's a very, like you said, 90% probability that the Bigfoot exists. I think there's probably, like I said, Orang Pendek, probably 97% chance. Um, when it comes to some of these other ones, I think it's maybe 50-50, you know, whatever, but there's still always that chance. So, you know, I, I, you guys out there doing the work and feet on the ground and, and, you know, putting out books and researching is great. I mean, it, it would be something I would love to do, but I, uh, wife and four kids later, I don't have the time to do that. <laughs> so yeah. I, will, I will take the time, watch the documentaries and read your books. <laughs> well, I understood Paul copy that. Yeah. Um, but hey, thanks so much for having me on your show. As I said, it was an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, great questions. Uh, and uh, yeah, if anyone wants to uh, find out more, uh, you know, all of my books are available on Amazon.com. You can go find me there. All right. Um, I will put your information at the end. When I edit this all together, I'll put your information at the end of the episode so people can find you. Oh, um, thank you. I appreciate that. Is there anything you want to plug before we before you let you go for the night? Um, well, I have a new DVD out. Let me see if I can find a copy here. I say, wait, it's really we. Uh, this is called American Monster Tour. Uh, it's two episodes featuring uh, my colleague Lyle Blackburn and myself. We often get confused for each other because we have similar hats. Hats, and, yep. But uh, we basically, we team up and we go around the country. We're both musicians. And uh, so it's like a tour. We're touring but we're looking for monsters and uh, we got two episodes on this new DVD, which is available not on Amazon yet, but people can reach out to myself or Lyle Blackburn if they'd like to get a, a copy of our two episode DVD. Cool. Um, what's the name of your band? Is it American Monsters? Oh God, no, <laughs> no, I was in several bands through the years, but uh, uh, I guess one that was well known was called Bamboo Crisis, which was kind of a, an industrial band that uh, we were fairly underground but um i haven't i haven't really done that in years so okay. <laughs> i still like to tour but without the gigs without the gig. <laughs> you don't play music no more i'd like to tour but <laughs> all right well like i said i i thank you so much for 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 being on here um i do appreciate it and uh i'm gonna hopefully get the finish this book up here in the next day or so uh but I'm a comic book nerd, if you can't tell. So I read a ton of comic books that. and a, run, a ton very of books. Cool. So, but yet again, thank you very much. And um, like I said, you guys can catch Ken on about any documentary ever about cryptids. <laughs> um, and uh, famously on Monster Quest and on the Travel Channel. So I thank you again, sir. And you have a good night and take care. Thank you, Paul. Thanks to everyone who listened in. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye.
All right. Thank you for watching tonight's episode or today's episode, whenever you're watching this podcast, this show. Um, thank you again to Ken. Um, you can find Ken, like I said, he's he's well known for being on uh, History Channel, on Monster Quest, uh, the Travel Channel, um, documentaries on Amazon Prime, Tubi, and 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 Plex. Um, I will post some more of his information here at the end of the episode. So I will see you guys on the next episode of the Hold on One Second. As always, the Group Therapy TV podcast. The Group Therapy TV podcast, excuse me, is brought to you by Are You Game, the best comic book collectible all-around geek shop in Pickle, Ohio, located at 124 North Sunset Drive, Pickle, Ohio, 45356. And you can also watch me on Saturday mornings on my other show, Saturday Morning Serials, where I bring you the best of cartoons from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, along with PSAs, commercials, and all that fun stuff. So I say good night to you all, and I will see you next time on the Group Therapy Podcast. Later. Bye.